the Holy Spirit to live in your heart so that you can draw us nearer to you. And it's it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Good morning, guys. Um, good to be here. I, I really enjoy a good story. Uh, I used to, I got really into reading in college. It took me a while um, to actually like books. And I feel like I haven't really um, read a lot lately. But if you had a good four years, um, I spend a lot more time watching TV and movies now, but that's besides the point. In conventional storytelling, you know, when, when the story starts off, you have this rising action, and it eventually reaches some point of climax or, like, its crisis point, and that's when the tension's at its greatest, right? This great tension, the best stories have the greatest tension. That's what makes it so good. You know, it has the audience on their edge of their seat. They just have no idea how the situation can possibly resolve. Now, it's, most, it's this tension that creates the most noteworthy resolution. If there's no conflict, it doesn't really matter how the story resolves. Let's imagine the movie Star Wars for a second. But instead of the Empire being some evil empire that's only concerned with controlling and um, gaining power over the galaxy, just imagine them as benevolent. You know, they, they promote peace and prosperity across the galaxy led by their friendly leader, Darth Vader. Um, and the story is just about this young man named Luke, you know, who is on this deserted planet, and he is traveling across the galaxies, and he uh, one day finds out that Darth Vader's his dad. And uh, it might be a feel-good story, but that doesn't really carry the same weight or significance of the original plot. Uh, the conflict in the story really serves to create the better resolution. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul is telling a story here. He's writing this letter to believers uh, at the church of Ephesus, and he is telling them the stories of their lives before and after they know Christ. Now, if you've been in church for a while, the stuff we're going to talk today might not be new to you. You've probably heard it before, but I implore you not to tune me out yet. Let God work through your heart today and open your heart and see what he's telling you. Because the story that we're going to talk about today serves as, as such an important reminder for us. It is foundational to our faith. And it's probably the most important story that you're going to see because it's about your rescue. See, before we knew Christ, we were hopeless because of our sin. You know, but God intervened in our hopeless situation and restored us to the original purpose that he had for our lives. See, we're going to talk today about just how desperate and hopeless our lives are apart from God. And then we're going to look at God's love and his mercy and his grace for us when he rescued us. And then finally, we're going to look and see what God's new purpose is for our life. In the first three verses of this passage, Paul describes the state of humanity apart from God. He proclaims that apart from God, we are in a hopeless situation, living enslaved to sin and rebelling against our Creator. And because of that, we are deserving of his wrath. In verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that seems pretty severe, but let's just stop and see who he's talking to, because he's saying the word you. As I mentioned earlier, Paul's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and he's writing it to believers there. And the church is primarily made up of Gentiles and non-Jews. But... In verse 3 of this passage, he actually includes the rest of mankind in this condemnation. So the state that we're talking about in these first three verses are, is the state of being 
to the entirety of mankind that is living apart from God. Now, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses. But what does he mean by dead? You know, clearly he's not talking about a literal, physical death here, right? He's not saying that we're all a bunch of zombies walking around the world. That'd be really weird. That's not what he's saying here. But he is talking about an actual death. And the death that Paul's talking about is the spiritual death apart from God. And this death means that we've been alienated and separated from God because of our rebellion against him. You see, God created mankind for a purpose. See, and that purpose was to bring glory to him. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You see, God had a purpose for, our, for his creation. And his purpose, and, and we had this purpose, but can we possibly achieve the purpose that God set out for us if we rebel against him with our sin? Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. With our sin, we've accumulated this debt. And it's created this, this void between us and God, and we have fallen under condemnation. You see, we have this holy and righteous God, and we've rebelled against him, and there's nothing that we can do. There's no righteous act, no personal sacrifice that we can do to reconcile us with our perfect God. And our fallen humanity is so deeply rooted in sin that Paul gives three ways that we're being influenced by it. The first one is we're being influenced by our environment. Verse 2 says that we were following the course of this world. And following the course of this world essentially means to, to say and do what the world says to do. You know, to give into society's norms. And these norms, of course, they change from generation to generation. It looks different to follow the way of the world today than it did in the 1950s. I just kind of imagine a bunch of, like, sock hops and stuff in the 1950s. I'm probably wrong there, but that's what I get from movies. Um, so you, but you might say, you know, oh, I don't follow the world. You know, I, I walk to the beat of my own drum. But each, each generation thinks that they're breaking through and changing the way that the world works. You know, but that, that might be true to some degree, but their lives are still being dominated by temporal matters, matters of this world. You know, the things that they think and the things that they speak and act, they're all being influenced by what they see in the world. When we walk in the way of the world, we lose all perspective of eternity. When we walk in the way of the world, we lose all perspective of eternity. See, back in the James series, Pastor Chris talked a little bit about orienteering. I uh, took an orienteering lesson once in elementary school on a field trip. We got lost in the woods, so I learned what not to do. But um, to give you guys a little refresher, orienteering is the process of determining your position and direction using a compass. So just imagine, like, we wanted to go this way. That's west, I believe. You, you choose an object in the distance, and then you start walking towards it. And you'd be using your compass to, to find the object, and then that's, you'd use that as your point of reference. But the key here is that you choose an object really far in the distance. Because if you, if you use something close, and you're looking at something close, and you're off by a little bit, the more you go, the more you're off. And the same principle applies to the perspective of the world. See, when we focus our lives on matters of the world, it is so easy to lose our way. 
Now we turn away from what God's purpose of love is. Now we are bearing his image and created for his glory. You know, but we just start living for today. With this life wandering aimlessly, with no direction except for what we see by society's standards. And with these standards that society puts out, they're not God. And they do not bring him glory. And so Paul continues from here, we were not only subject to this pervasive bondage of our age, but we are also being influenced by powerful, evil, supernatural forces. We don't often talk about it at the church, but there are evil, supernatural forces in this world. And the Bible makes that very clear. They've rebelled against God. They are powerful. And they are seeking to lure God's creation away from him. Paul writes that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is referring to Satan. And Satan has a few titles in the Bible. Some of the Gospels refer to him as the ruler of demons or the prince of this world. But what does it mean to be the prince of the power of the air? See, power of the air doesn't actually denote Satan's authority over the air. What it's, it's actually talking about, it's, it's the place in, where, in which he dwells. His title refers to the, re- the realm or sphere of influence that he works in. And it's further defined by the air. And when we think of the air, I mean, we think of like good stuff, right? Like the atmosphere in today's age. Ox- made up of oxygen, carbon dioxide. But in the ancient world, they actually had a different view of that. When they were referring to the air, they were referring to the space between heaven and earth. The air, another term for the air is uh, the heavenly realm. And that's further described in Ephesians 6 as the place where these evil forces reside. And in that chapter, Paul is telling the, telling the Christians here that those are the evil forces that were truly at battle with those Christians. And Satan has such an influence over the men and women in this world that because of his influence, people apart from God are being characterized as sons of disobedience. Satan and other evil forces are trying to dissuade people from following God. As those two weren't enough, Paul continues from here and says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The third point that Paul's making here is a little different than the first two. The first two were both external influences. We had the environment, and we had these evil supernatural forces. But in verse 3, Paul's describing our former life in terms of our fallen, self-centered human nature. When Paul is using the word flesh, he doesn't mean our physical existence. But instead, he's referring to our sinfulness and rebellion against God. When people are living in the flesh, it's impossible to please God. And since our very birth, that has been our very nature. Romans 8, verse 8 reads, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And when we think of the uh, passions of our flesh, a lot of times the first thing that comes to our mind are these carnal desires. You know, but that's not all that we're ta- that's talking about here. Paul actually gives us a list in Galatians 5. He says they include things, things such as sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, 
sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and other things like these. These passions dominated our lives. They influenced our very thoughts and our actions, and they were all leading us away from what God had set out for us to do. And Paul says that because of this rebellion and separation that exists between us and God, we are deserving of his righteous and divine wrath. And there's nothing we can really do to argue it. You know, the price for sin is death. And the, it's, we've all fallen prey to our sin. We've all been influenced to rebel against God. And the wrath here that you know, Paul is talking about, it's not a worldly wrath. He's not just saying that, you know, you're going to lose your nice house or maybe your nice car. Or maybe he's going to make you lose your job. That's not what he's talking about. It's a much, much worse penalty. The wrath of God that all of mankind deserves is to spend eternity in hell. It's serious, and that is why Paul's talking about it. But you may be asking, so why does this matter to us? Paul is writing this letter to believers. You know, they're no longer under this condemnation. They're no longer enslaved to their sin, and they're no longer being influenced to rebel against God. But in verse 11 and 12 of this chapter, Paul gives the Ephesians a command. He says, remember that you were once Gentiles and alienated from God. He wants you to remember this state in which you once lived. Not so that they fear the power of sin, but so that they know how much they need a Savior. See, the hopeless situation that we lived in apart from God served mainly to magnify just how great his mercy and his love is for us. And that is why it's so important for us to remember this. It's so important to remember just how much we need a Savior. And I would argue that it's actually impossible to fully love God and to cherish him and his love for us without understanding this. You cannot possibly cherish him and his amazing mercy unless you accept that you were hopeless and that you need him. So remember this. Remember that we were once hopeless, that we were lost, and we were dead because of our sin and rebellion against our great God. And that brings us to verse 4. Uh, the next two words are my favorite two words in the Bible. They are the title of the sermon, and they're pretty incredible. Uh, but God. See, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. We were enslaved to the power of sin, but God. And we were deserving of his righteous and divine wrath because we rebelled against our creator, but God. Verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow. We have a great God. 
is loving and merciful and kind and gracious. And he met us in all of our strength and wickedness. And that is when he saved us. See, he pursued us when all hope was lost. He came to us in our brokenness and with, with all of his love, and he poured out his mercy and his grace on us. And in verse 4, Paul switches the subject of the passage from you to God. He's emphasizing here God's intervening love in our lives. See, God wasn't just going to sit idly by and let his precious creation fall to decay. Instead, he decided to show his great love towards us. In this passage, Paul's not only describing what God did for us, but he's also describing his character. He says that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's kind. God is rich in mercy. The Bible often describes God as abounding in mercy. So usually when the Bible is talking about God's mercy, it's because he's rescued someone from some hopeless situation after they were being unfaithful to him. Mercy is a term used when someone has every right to punish someone else, but instead they show compassion and forgiveness. And that's what God did. We just looked at our rebellion against our God. And we are 100% deserving of his wrath. We were, in, we were living a life alienated from God because of our sin. And we know that the penalty for sin is death, and we deserved it. And so God showed his mercy to us. God's mercy is one that we don't deserve and we never will. But that's what makes it so great. See, God's mercy here, it was no small act. We were spiritually dead. There was an actual death. And yet because we have a God that loves us so much, he made us alive. So we have a just God. And since God is just, there was a price on our heads. And it had to be paid. And our debt needed to be settled in his love. You see, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect and righteous life and then die in our stead. And the wrath of God that we deserved was poured out on the cross of Jesus. And by his blood, we have been made alive. Just imagine it with me. Imagine a grave. Your grave. And when I tell you to imagine a grave, don't imagine the cemetery with a bunch of flowers and flags and it looks all nice. And no. Imagine a really unkept grave. There, there's weeds overgrowing it. There's grass. No one's mowed it in a while. It probably smells. Let's just go with it smells. It's not appealing. But see, when God, God looked at the grave, and he looked at it and he said, I want to make that alive. And he went to his son, he went to Jesus, and he said, I want to make that alive. Will you die so that Andrew can live? Will you die so that Jameson can live? And Jesus looked and he saw exactly what God saw. He said, yes. That's incredible. That's powerful. That is God's mercy. That's the kind of God that we have, a God that loves us so much that he would die for us just so that we can be reconciled to him. And he doesn't just stop there. That would be pretty great regardless, but he says that we have been saved by grace. So God's mercy is defined as taking away a punishment that we deserve. But his grace 
is God giving us something that we don't? You see, he wasn't just going to take away our sins, just let us go. No, he was going, he's going to lavish us with his grace. We are going to experience the immeasurable riches of it because that's how much he loves us. Paul writes that we have been made alive with Christ. And he's saying with Christ here, he is showing our incredible union with Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have been united with him in his death and in his life. And what God has done for Jesus Christ, he has done for you. Paul further describes this by saying that we were raised with and seated with Christ. If our spiritual death meant that we were alienated from God, then being made alive with Christ means that we've been reconciled to him. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, when we have faith in him, we too have been raised. This bondage of sin that was controlling our lives, it's broken. Romans 6, verses 5 and 6 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And once we believed in Christ, our old self is gone. And our new life with Christ has started. We no longer live, are living in the flesh, but now we're living in the spirit. We've been made a new creation that is no longer meant for this world, no longer meant to be enslaved to sin, and no longer under the condemnation after Jesus' resurrection, he is seated at the right hand of God. His work is finished. He accomplished what the Father sent him to do, and he has paid the price for all of our sins. In Judaism, the role of the high priest was to offer sacrifices in order to atone for people's sins. And now in the Jewish temple, there was, there was no seat for the priest because their work was never finished. There always had to be another sacrifice because the people were always going to keep sinning and none of their sacrifices would ever be enough. Hebrews 10, verse 11 and 12 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Work is finished, so he took a seat. And now we have also been seated with Christ. There's no more work left for us to do. Through Christ's sacrifice, our sin has been paid in full, and there's nothing that we did to earn it, but it's ours. And this grace and this mercy from God sounds awesome, but how do we obtain it? You know, how do we become freed? of our sin and reconcile to God. Paul tells us it's through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Faith that all of our sin has been paid by the blood of Christ. Faith that we are no longer, in, no longer slaves to sin, but instead have been adopted as children of God. Faith that we have been made new and now live a life for God in order to bring glory to him. 
your faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, having faith in Jesus means repenting of our old sinful ways, turning away from the life we once walked and living with God as the center of our lives and living in relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We were once consumed by following the world, and mainly that was because we had no idea what it meant to do anything else. But now God has given us hope for something more. There's a greater, something greater to live for. And that's what our lives should be focused on. Instead of living for things of this world, we can fix our eyes on eternity with our glorious Savior. We were also being influenced by Satan, but now we have the promises of God and his word. We were living in our sinful flesh, but we have died to the flesh so that now we can live by the spirit which God has given to us. And the salvation we've obtained is all through faith. And it's all by the grace of God. It's a free gift. See, there was nothing you did to deserve it. You didn't have to live a better life than most. You didn't have to have more good deeds than bad deeds, and there was, there was no scale to it. It was a free gift. Paul stresses here that you had nothing to do with it. He says that this is not of your own doing, and that is really important, because it's impossible for you to obtain your salvation by yourself. And it's definitely not because of anything you did, any result of your labor. If salvation becomes a result of works, then it diminishes what Christ did on the cross. If it's by something that you did, then you don't need Christ. And even now, after you've been saved, God's grace and his mercy still abounds in your life. It still doesn't come down to works of salvation. You know, the price has been paid. In verse 10, Paul talks about God's purpose for your new life. He says that we are God's workmanship. We're his handiwork. He's made us into something new here. And through God's hands, we have been made new, and our new creation has a purpose. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That might sound confusing because I just said there was nothing that you had to do, and now we're talking about good works, and that is, could be confusing. But these good works that Paul's talking about, it's not a requirement for salvation. Instead, it's a consequence of our new creation. See, we've been restored to God's original purpose for our lives. And our purpose in Christ Jesus is to bring glory to him, to show the love and grace and mercy that God has shown us to others so that we can point them to him. See, God's, God's grace is incredible. But does anyone ever struggle with accepting it? No, not really. <laughs> it, might, it might sound a little crazy, um, but I've, I've actually struggled with it at times. About a month ago, I was grabbing breakfast with Pastor Chris, uh, and like usual, he asked me how I was, and 
I was honest with him, and I told him I was struggling. You know, I was struggling because I was, I was asked to preach, and I had been preparing the sermon for a really long time, and I just knew I am not worthy of this. You know, I am not the most righteous person or the wisest or the best speaker, and all I could do was think of myself. And I'm not even as prepared as I should be today. I hope I didn't bore you guys. And as I was pouring this all out onto him, I'm just, I just told him, I'm like, it is so ironic that I'm preaching on Ephesians 2. Now, see, everything I, everything I just said was true, and everything I was thinking of myself was true. You know, I am not the wisest person. You can ask my wife. She has stories. Um, yeah, <laughs> there, are, there are plenty of people more righteous than me, and I am not as prepared as I should be. You know, but even though all this is true, it's an hypocrisy. And it's not the good map. See, I'm not the wisest, but God has all the wisdom in the world. And in James, he says he gives it generously to all without reproach. I still sin, but Jesus Christ has died for all of my sins, past, present, and future. Now, God sees me as holy and blameless before him. I'm not as prepared as I should be today, but God is. And he's given me the Holy Spirit who will work through my heart and through my words today for his glory. The problem is, is I was just, I was focused on myself. You know, I was looking at myself and looking at my heart, and I just didn't like what I saw. But that's not Paul's message here. Stop looking at yourself. Stop consuming yourself with thoughts of this world and thoughts of your life here. Look to God. Look to what he has done for you and rejoice. Look to his great grace and his mercy and his love for you. Maybe, and maybe you're just sitting here today, and you look at yourself and you just kind of see a mess. And maybe you think that God must love some future version of you. You know, God's outside of time. He, he knows where you're going to be in 10 years. Maybe that's the version of you that he loves. You know, that's the version of you that's actually appealing to God actually pleasing to him. Maybe that's, that's making you strive today. Maybe you feel like you have to do all these things, like read your Bible every day or, or volunteer just so that you can earn what God has given to you, to earn your keep, to earn your salvation. But that's not Paul's message here, and that is not the gospel. When you came to know Christ, God saw you as a mess, and that is where he met you. He saved you while you were a mess, and he loved you while you were a mess. And now he wants to show you just how much he loves you. By continuing to show his incredible grace and mercy on your lives. And maybe, maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. Maybe you've come to church for a while now, but you've never really given your life to him. You don't know what that means. You don't know what it means to actually have faith in Jesus Christ don't know him today, if you've never put your faith in him or built a relationship with Christ, here's your invitation. He wants you. He loves you. So repent. Repent of the sin that's consuming your life. Repent of your old ways and follow God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and all of your sins will be covered. Put your faith in his death and in his life. And you can be 
open to the incredible love and grace available to you in Christ Jesus. If you need to talk about it, I would be more than happy to talk to you. I know the elders would also be happy to talk to you. Come see us. And if you already do know Christ, never forget this. We can all use this reminder from time to time. You know, we don't need to strive for God's love or his grace. It's there for you. He met you where you were, and he's met you where you are today. And he loves you. And finally, we're just going to end with some scripture. Uh, There are God's promises for you. If you ever struggle with accepting this, if you ever ever try to strive for to earn your own righteousness, then, then I hope these will help. Write them down, memorize them, put them on your fridge at home, do something. Uh, they should be up on the screen behind me. They're the promises of God. Some of them, not all of them. There's a lot of them. <laughs> uh, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Romans 3, verse 22 and 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. And Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So remember this. Remember that we were once enslaved, but God enabled us. Remember that we were deserving of his wrath, but God showed us his mercy. Let the knowledge of your former life, apart from God, drive you deeper and into more powerful love for our Savior. Now focus your heart and your mind on God and your eternity with Him. Rest in His promises and His amazing love and grace and mercy for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you calling us all here together to worship you. Lord, I thank you for your great love and your mercy that you have for us, Lord. Lord, I thank you for, for allowing us to be in this desperate state of hopelessness, needing you, because, Lord, it just shows how much you have changed. Lord, I pray that we can focus on that love today that we can focus on that grace and that mercy today and that it can just drive us so much closer to you. Lord, please work in our hearts this morning. Jesus, it is in your precious name that we pray.